Welcome to the Fram Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is the Out of the Park podcast series. We invite you to join us for other programming you can find on our website at www.framparkcenter.org. Join us. This is the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life Out of the Park podcast series. I'm Wes Avram, the pastor of Pinnacle Presbyterian Church, the director of the Fran Park Center. My guest today is Dr. Kyle Jensen active participant in the life here of this congregation and the Park Center. We have been talking about artificial intelligence. This is the second part of a two-part series. We will continue our conversation and hope hope that you can go back and listen to the first part if this is of any interest. But at this point, we take the conversation into a philosophical and theological turn. You know, and I, and I struggle um, or sort of bounce back and forth in this question, too, as a kind of Presbyterian theologian of sorts. Between this idea that this that the the answer in in the context of of real life that we're given, God gave us a mind to reason together to is to retain as you t- describe agency right to maintain to be able to understand the world around us enough to maintain critical agency to in this case to be able to understand technologies as tools that I can pick up and set down because the story I'm a part of is larger than these. I can incorporate them into a larger story. I also know that human nature is fragile, and we have a tendency toward Mm self-destruction. Left to ourselves, we will destroy ourselves. You know, a little bit of Calvin's coming out. (laughs) Thank God we're not left to ourselves. Right. But, But... we're not left to ourselves both because of the community around us and critical thought, but also God's grace mm-hmm. and God's grace and the story of salvation that can save me from myself so that I can take a place in the world. Right? Uh, but that the tradition that says left to ourselves, we will destroy ourselves also give, you know, culminates in the idea of touch not the unclean thing. Mm-hmm. But there are some things that while some people may be able to pick up and put down. So many of us just can't because of our the addictive quality of human experience mm-hmm. that we may destroy ourselves, however metaphorically, you know, individuals or as a, as a society by touching the unclean thing. I don't know the balance there. We don't know that together, but there are some things not worth touching. Right? Mm-hmm. There are some things, uh, you know, nuclear bombs, we should never have created, mm-hmm. but we have them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, do we put them to good? I don't know what good use they can be put to, but we have them. How do we think about them? Is there something, what, how do we negotiate that path between celebrating human agency and conscience and protecting ourselves from ourselves? You know, working with an 18-year-old student who's trying to find their way through all of this. So there, it's a really interesting question. And I'm not sure that I, I, I want to stress that I am one one person and there are, I have a number of really brilliant colleagues who would probably say something a little bit different than me. I study a modern rhetorician named Kenneth Burke who wrote what is arguably the most important contribution to rhetorical studies since Aristotle's rhetoric. It's a book called The Rhetoric of Motives. This is some a book that I've just spent a lot of time with. And so I happen to know quite a lot about how he start when he started writing it, why he wrote it, how it evolved in response to the early Cold War period. He started writing it in 1946, just shortly after um, mm-hmm. 
the U.S. dropped bombs on Hiroshima, nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. And the exigence for writing this book was we are going to destroy ourselves unless we figure out this language thing, this argumentative thing, because for him, the war of words was arguably more dangerous than, you know, the nuclear wars right. that were kind of on the horizon. This was also the great motive of Jacques Ellul, who I talked about. Who That's propaganda right. And, and other, his whole philosophy of technology came out of how, what happened and how can we avoid that happening again? That's exactly yeah. right. And so there's this wonderful part in the early part of A Rhetoric of Motives where Burke is writing about the autonomy of science. And if you know anything about the early Cold War period, you catch the drift of where he's headed right away. But essentially what it says is that there is no such thing as autonomous science. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can go back to the interviews where uh, those mathematicians and scientists working on the Manhattan Project were interviewed. Some of them said we weren't building a bomb. We were calculating right. equations. And mm -hmm. other of them, uh, many of them were wringing their hands and saying, what were we a part of? Okay, so that's the kind of context, and he has this very famous line that he, by the way, he wrote in the margins of the fair copy right before he published it. So it's one of the most famous lines in all of rhetorical history, and he just like wrote it as a side note to add like an inflection point. The line is, the shepherd qua shepherd uh, acts for the good of the sheep to prevent them from discomfiture and harm, but he may be identified with preparing them for the market. Mm -hmm. And what he means by that is... Um, if a shepherd is just hanging out on a hill and with his sheep and he's paying attention and you know, he, his whole job, the, the conceptualization of his existence is my job is to, pr to protect these sheep. So if there's a threat, I stand in front of them, nothing is going to come. To, and I define my role within the capacity of me being a shepherd. Th that's the beginning and end of my work. But what we have to realize, and, and I'm paraphrasing Burke here, obviously, but this, the hill has a, a town mm -hmm. underneath it, and there's a marketplace down there. And we can never lose sight of the fact that those sheep that he's working so hard to protect and prevent from discomfiture and harm are eventually going to be market products. And so the question that he's asking his audience to consider is, at what point are you identifying with a project that is, runs counter to your consciously held values? The point is not to condemn the shepherd. The shepherd's doing his, his her, their job, whatever, taking care of the sheep and probably even loves the sheep. And this is an apt metaphor, obviously, for you know, a, a Judeo-Christian audience. But at what point does one lose sight of the broader context, the broader you know, ripple effects of one's things that are by in isolation care? Here's Burke's really big point. We don't get to, like, we're all embroiled. Mm -hmm. We are all the shepherd in that situation. We can convince ourselves that if we cast the circumference of our work on a day-to-day -day basis narrowly enough, that we are, all we're doing is preventing the sheep from experiencing discomfiture and harm. But if we start to cascade out, if we widen the circle to consider the implications of our actions to broader broader contexts, suddenly we become extensions of the market. And so what is the antidote to it? I think it's living in that space with humility. It's recognizing that 
there is a, oftentimes a misalignment between what mm-hmm. we intend and what effects we produce on a day-to-day basis. And the best we can do in most situations is to lean into grace, to recognize that th- those misalignments are things that we need to account for, um, to take responsibility for, to you know, lean on God's grace in order to kind of cope yeah. with, and then to proceed with humility and, and, so the, and forgiveness. The church has often said the answer is not policy, but liturgy. It's yeah. why we come together to sing, to confess our sin, right. to embrace grace, and to try another day. Yeah. Uh, but with that also comes increasing awareness and being willing to look realistically at where we are. Right? And that's that's um, really hard yeah. hard work. One of my, um, in that spirit, I mean, I think you know one of my favorite kind of historians, theologians, philosophers of technology is Ivan Illich, who wrote at one point that, you know, about the history of Western you know, the history of the West, he would say in a good broad generalization, but is corruptio optimus. The corruption of the best is the worst, is the continual corruption of core Christian insights. Mm-hmm. One of which is the idea of remedium, that we can experience what we see in the in the story of God's redeeming of the world, we can embody in our own experience by seeking remedy for our human condition. We can seek to bind up the wounds of our neighbor because we've experienced the grace of the love that made us. And that impulse to remedium, that impulse to remedy in human experience gives rise to Western technology. Mm -hmm. And there is a point, though, at which that rise creates contexts that end up producing the very things they attempt to cure. Mm-hmm. So we have lawyer-created injustice. We have a medically-created illness. We have church-created um, ignorance. <laughs> we have the very tools, the very things that we create to remedy produce the very things that they're um, designed to, to heal. And yet we then begin to trust the tools themselves to be the remedy. So we fundamentally believe that technology will save us when the story we used to tell was grace, was a story of grace. And then we we begin to talk about technology as grace. There's an app for that. Right. <laughs> is a very popularized way of saying, oh, there's an answer in the tool, uh, rather than thinking about the broader, the bigger story. Right. Um, I love that story from Burke you talk about it, this that we are caught up. We can't but corrupt the very thing and yet we keep doing it. Why wouldn't we? Yeah. Right? Well and it may be even more complicated than that. I mean, you're familiar with the work of the French philosopher, the French post-structuralist Jacques Derrida. Mm-hmm. His book of grammatology, you know, like this is not a book meant for public consumption. I mean, it, it's a very well-known book, but it's a very, it's like Gravity's Rainbow. It's a really tough read. Yeah. Um, but one of his fundamental arguments in that book is the character is that from its emergence, like its mythic emergence uh, into uh, Western philosophy, writing is characterized as a pharmacon, mm-hmm. both the poison and the cure. And the cure, yeah. And so, and what Derrida's great insight is, we don't know what speech is until the emergence of writing, which then creates a differential relationship. So we often talk about the priority of speech over writing mm-hmm. because it feels more immediate to our voice. But what we understand about speech 
is routed through writing because mm-hmm. it's not writing. That makes sense. So that that's kind of a rough and tumble way of explaining it. But we need to remember that that the technology, like the alphabet writing is a technology itself. Mm-hmm. And what's even better, and this is this is kind of the humility of, of, of both of us being rhetoricians, rhetoric is characterized as a technique. So it it becomes mm-hmm. a technology that becomes a way of being. And there's mm-hmm. You know, all throughout rhetorical history, uh, it, the characterization of the good man or the good woman speaking becomes a way of building ethos and trust with one's audience. Well, there's a cost to that work as well. One can become too reliant on rhetoric as its own as a mediator unto itself. So, you know, you I, I think you and I are probably similarly. Um, positioned on this point that rhetoric is very valuable but it isn't it cannot be an end in itself it is not it it, it can be t- become too mm-hmm. humane if that makes sense um there is a component where one confronts one's own limits as a human being and needs to rely on on god's grace and god's provision and god's sovereignty in order to recalibrate as it were um, to recognize our own kind of frailty and proceed two, on that two people can say the same sentence and mean something entirely different. Yeah. Jesus is Lord. Yeah. Can be meant can mean something entirely different by two people, even though it's the same word. Right. Much depends on our relationship to the speech that we the sentence that we've created. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and who gets to decide? That's the real that, who, that's where that's the rhetorical situation comes in as we can sit and argue and say we we mean the same thing and one or the other person might say, Actually, I don't think we do. And how do you resolve that? Because the the as soon as it's said, as as soon as it's written, it's starting to slide into new context, and then you're talking about the talk about, and you're arguing about an altogether different issue. So as you think about your students sitting in a class saying, "Help me know how to write," mm-hmm. and yet and and they're also using tools in front of them from computer to ChatGPT to and the like. What happens to subjectivity? What happens to the sense of their own personal creativity, agency? How does that, not does it go away, but how does it change? And you don't know the answer to that because you'll, you, you'll know more 10 years from now. Yeah. What are you seeing now? I, I don't tend to frame writing instruction in terms of creativity or uh-huh. personal agency per se, although I think that both of those things play a component part. Actually, I think a more helpful framework is to think about it in terms of problem solving. So how do you define a problem? How do you address a problem? How do you know that the problem that you've defined is addressable? And if it's addressable, is it whom, to whom is it addressable and in what context? Anybody who's written anything through the framework of problem solving knows that one of the biggest challenges is creating the occasion where one can make decisions Mm -hmm. about what one has written. So as a professional writer, I I have six books. The work of writing doesn't become any easier over time, not because I'm not learning from the previous book, but because what I know how to do, what I learn from each book is to generate even more possibilities. And that puts me in a place where I'm I understand the decision-making process in more complicated ways. But for a first-year writer that's coming to college for the first time, they're navigating a space that they may have heard about, but it's an, they're working with 
not to be disrespectful to high school teachers, but there's a pretty significant distance between a high school teacher and a PhD who's, you know, a nationally or internationally recognized scholar of their area. All of a sudden they're interacting with an expert and they don't know how to navigate that space. Mm-hmm. And so they spend a lot of time guessing, trying to invent, well, who am I in this space? What do I say? And what happens is it becomes very kind of predictable, very cliched and so on. The challenge of the teacher then is to say, all right, how do we imagine possibilities given the limits of your existing engagement with the work or the topic or the problem? What AI can do really helpfully is it can invent possibilities and punctuate for students the need to actually multiply possibilities, not to look for an algorithm that says, if I input this here, the output is an A, right? Mm-hmm but to model the decision-making process. So one of the tools that I work with is called WordTune. You can type in a word sentence or a paragraph, hit enter, and what it will do is it'll give you 10 to 15 different options about how the sentence, word sentence or paragraph could have been rewritten. That automatically produces a different relationship to the work of writing because all, this, all of a sudden the students are going to say, I didn't know the sentence could be written like, that way, and now I have to figure out is the thing that I wanted to say consistent with what my options are at this particular point. In researching students, they usually have one of three reactions. They'll look at it and say, that's better than what, that that says what I wanted to say, but it's better, and I'm going to incorporate that into my writing. They will say, all of these options are terrible, and I'm going to either stick with what I've written, or I'm going to modify it, or what they do, and I think this is actually the most interesting part, They'll look at their, their, what they've written, they'll look at the options, and they'll say, there's a space in between here. I need to find an amalgam of what I'm saying and the options that are available to me. And then they produce an inventive solution that departs from where they were previously. And the goal of uh, any good writing instructor is to then fold back and say, okay, Wes, you made this decision. You created an amalgam mm-hmm. from the various options. Tell me why. How does it relate to audience purpose situation? Well, in terms of the the work of writing, what you've described is in a short period of time what we've always understood the learned person to be. Right. And they've done that work in the library. Right. right? Or in human experience and human encounter. But as you talk about that, but you do it in a very short period of time and and raise critical questions about it in situ in the situation. But I'm thinking about this as you listen to that, about is there an analogy there to spiritual formation? Is there an analogy what, to what Christians would call discipleship? How we learn to write our lives into God's story, into the story of the church, into the story of our own spiritual development. And what does the explosion of accessible knowledge, not just Christian, but of world articulation, world knowledge, various yeah. options. I talk, I talk to my 25-year-old son about this too, and he says, why would I, w- what's unique about Christian thinking when everybody else thinks the same thing? I mean, I, there are all kinds of religions in the world, right? So why why this one? Mm-hmm. And, I, and the only response I can make is look and see, right? think, explore. Uh, I can't protect him from right. all that knowledge, right? So what as you think about this, is there an analogy in what you just talked about in terms of working with young writing students to the work 
of our own faith development as children of God, students of the gospel, brothers and sisters in the faith. Absolutely. When I was in high school, I took this class. I went to a Christian high school my junior and senior year. And we did, we took this class. I don't want to tell you what the title of the class was because it's affiliated with a theologian and I don't want to, you know, throw shade over, you know, a podcast or whatever. <laughs> but I can tell you how it affected me. Um, the argument essentially was this, that any contemporary engagement with theology that cast doubt on the integrity of said theology was to be avoided. So one of the main culprits was Friedrich Nietzsche. You don't read Nietzsche because Nietzsche mm -hmm. is going to compromise your ability to develop a fully formed faith. Look at how desperate and sad, it, you know, the guy right. crying, you know, loses his mind, you know, placing his arm around the horse. Well, all that made me want to do is read Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. It's like, what's in there? <laughs> and it turns out Nietzsche is really <laughs> wonderful yeah. to read if what you want to do is have a serious engagement with theology and to develop a mature orientation towards your faith. So I've been asked by fellow colleagues, why read Burke? Why read Foucault? Um, these are clearly thinkers that tell us that there is no such thing as God. And I read them because they multiply ways of seeing the world that force me to make decisions. And every time I make those decisions and form judgments mm -hmm. about my own faith in, in light of what they've written, it requires me to justify my faith in more complicated and nuanced ways, to think harder about it. I don't think everybody has the same kind of reaction when reading those types of things. And I think it's important for every person to read the types of things or engage in the kind of communities that build up their faith and encourage them to develop a, a deeper, more intimate connection with God. But for me, that is what led to a kind of more more mature engagement. So, you know, growing up in, in, in the U.S. as a Christian, and I've lived all over the U.S., I've gone to all different kinds of churches, you know, from Washington to Oregon to Illinois to Texas and now into Arizona, it, it, it doesn't take 10 minutes to realize that there's a lot of factionalization and a lot of the factionalization tries to silence mm -hmm. anyone who opposes it, treats opposition as an enemy well in a in a uh, in the imminent what charles taylor would call the imminent frame you know that when we sort of lose a sense of the ever-present transcendent right and that the transcendent it becomes a boundary the, the idea of what's up there and out there but outside of our own experience right. Right? and so we don't experience the transcendent then we we bounce between fear and fascination mm -hmm. right we're either afraid of something or fascinated by it and it would seem to me what you're describing is the kind of community, which is the kind of church that I would love, I love being a part of, where at least in some moments we can find a way between fear and fascination, mm -hmm. where we don't have to fear the world nor be fascinated by it, mm -hmm. but we can find our place within it in the context of a sense of the transcendence ever present with us so that we can look. Uh, critically and carefully at the world in which we live. We can read, we can engage, we can um, 
we 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 can be changed <laughs> by by things uh, outside what have been traditionally understood as the faith without fascination. Well, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was like a Bible passage that called us to be in the world but not of the world? Wouldn't it now? That would be really convenient. <laughs> um, Maybe that's a place where we can bring some of this to a conclusion today. Yeah. Um, but there's so much more to talk about. I agree. Hmm. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. This is the Out of the Park podcast series from the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life. Uh, we have, our conversation has been very freewheeling today, but we hope that in the midst of it, there have been some irregularly placed spots where you all as hearers can stand on to uh, ask the next question. Be sure to take a look at podcasts to come. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us at our Out of the Park podcast series. If you like this program and would like to check out more, go to our website at www.framparkcenter.org.